welcome to American Road Trip Talk. I'm your host, Foster Brown. In the spring 2012 edition of American Road Magazine, our national road column features a story that I wrote about the Indianapolis Speedway. Other than the fact that both surfaces were navigated in cars, you might well ask, how is the national road related to the Speedway? In part one of our two-part series on the Indianapolis Speedway entitled Kissing the Brick, my guest is track historian Donald Davidson, and he gives us all the clues to the mysterious connections between the home of the Indianapolis 500 and the National Road. Davidson is uniquely qualified to tell the tale of this famous race course since he is its full-time historian, a position found nowhere else in the world. Now here is part one of our interview with Donald Davidson, track historian for the Indianapolis Speedway. Hi, this is Foster Brown with American Road Trip Talk, and today we are on the road and at a very special place in uh, motoring history, and that is the Indianapolis Speedway. With me right now is uh, somebody who is uh, unique in his own right as well as the place that he works, and that is Donald Davidson is with me. He's a track historian for the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, and Donald, welcome to American Road Trip Talk. Thank you very much indeed. Now, as I understand, by the way, uh, from your charming accent, that you are, you've come here from Great Britain. Uh, tell me how you got here and got to be part of the Indianapolis Speedway. Oh, well, that's a, that's a long story, but it happened a long time ago. So there's still some British in the accent, but it's a mixture of Hoosier and British. But uh, I was uh, born and raised in England, and motor racing was all around me. And uh, it's not a very big island, but uh, motor racing was always um, had a huge following. So you would know who the drivers were, whether you cared about it or not. And uh, so my dad had a, a probably a, you know at least a passing interest in motor racing. So I was raised knowing who all the drivers were, but it didn't click with me until I was about thirteen. But this was Grand Prix racing in Europe. And very quickly, I then had this insatiable thirst to get everything I could, and I found I could retain it because I had what turned out to be, uh, they tell me, a selective, retentive, easy access memory. <laughs> I've been given credit for photographic, but it's not that. Anyway, um, very early on in the game, uh, I discovered this thing called the Indianapolis 500, and which you couldn't pronounce, and what, that's a long name. What is it? The drivers are different. Uh, it's not a road course. It's all left-hand turns, and uh, the the drivers are Sam Hanks and Jimmy Bryan, and who are these people? So anyway, and then the car names were different. So uh, very quickly, I um, formed a fascination for that and started to send away to America for books because you couldn't find much in England on it at the time. And uh, then I started over a period of the next few years memorizing stuff, and with a view very early on, I'd like to go to America. I was always fascinated by America because of how, the way it was portrayed in films with all of the, you know, the beaches and palm trees and blue sky and neat curves and neat women, and I thought I want to go there. So. No, you didn't get the palm trees in, in Indianapolis. Oh, no, no, and also it gets cold in the winter, too. I didn't know about that. The leaves come off in the fall. Whoa, what happened? I didn't know about that. So anyway, I started very early on uh, saving up the money, and um, I actually worked in London for a while and uh, had a very interesting life there working backstage in London Theatre and uh, as a projectionist, and I was at the National Film Theatre in the Odeon Leicester Square, 
And I really enjoyed that, and it was hard to leave, but I wanted to, to do this. Well, actually, uh, in 1964, I came over on a holiday, just strictly on speculation, and I was I met a lot of people and was immediately taken into the inner circle, and uh, I would just... I was taken in right to the inside and met all the people, and they were all very good to me. And so I thought, oh, I've got to pursue this. So I uprooted from England and then uh, came back here. Uh, I was befriended by Sid Collins, who was the uh, the voice of the 500. He was the chief, you know, he was the anchor for the broadcast uh, from its formation in 1952. And when I met him, he took me under his wing. And actually, I was a... Uh, a guest on the broadcast in 1964. So I came back in 65, and Sid put me on as a regular. I'd been a guest in 64, and then I was hired by a a dear man named Henry Banks, who has a Detroit uh, uh, background. He was British-born, but lived in uh, Royal Oak for much of his life. (laughs) And uh, so anyway, he he was a national champion driver, retired director of competition for for the United States Auto Club, and he hired me. And so I'm giving a long answer here, but basically I uh, worked at USAC then because um, I came on a, a green card in 1965, and I stayed with USAC until I moved over to the Speedway uh, itself in 1998. And I've been on the radio broadcast ever since and uh, write articles. You have a, a unique title in a sense as a historian, and it's uh, a unique in a sense that there are, I don't think there are many other track historians, maybe any other track historians. Well, we think it's the only track in the world that has a historian on the full-time staff. I mean, other tracks, you know, have the, uh, a historian that is probably um, not either not paid or seasonal. And I'm full-time. We think it's the only one. Let's step back and talk about the Speedway itself, because uh, I understand from some of the background I know it that it, it's uh, a family-owned business, that it's uh, not a corporate business, that this has been a family affair. Well, this is now in its third ownership, and uh, the third ownership goes back to 1945. But none of the three ownerships uh, um, were, I mean, they, they were private companies. Amazingly, in this day and age, and I don't think even the locals realize this, that it is owned by a family and that there are no tax dollars. And so with all of this, with life as it is right now, with baseball stadiums and basketball and football stadiums, they don't go to uh, the government and say, we need money to build a grandstand or we're going somewhere else. They just very quietly do it. There are no tax dollars at at work here. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the history, since you are the historian, of of the Speedway and its connection to travel by car in the country, because there's a real link between them. The Speedway was founded in what year? 1909. But uh, the idea for building the track actually goes back probably to about 1904. And there was a lot of automobile industry here. Uh, it, it wasn't always Detroit. In fact, at one time, Indianapolis was never number one. But at one time, uh, Indiana built more automobiles than Michigan. And I think Cleveland, Ohio was number one at one time. So anyway, there was a lot of automobile industry here. And the main uh, problem when all of the, the the company heads because they didn't have the executive dining rooms in those days. Everybody went downtown for lunch, and everybody knew everybody else. And and you know, off on one of my tangents here. But uh, if you if you read the early days of the automobile industry, aircraft, bicycles, ballooning, motorcycles, it's all the same people. The everybody knew everybody else. 
And uh, so this Carl Fisher said, uh, we've got a problem now uh, because automobiles are capable of greater speeds than the roads could provide. We're, mm-hmm. we're testing cars on the roads, and the roads in Indiana are not paved. There, there, there were some states were beginning to appropriate funds for paving of streets, and Indiana was not one. And so he said, what we need is a, a, a place where you can really – push cars to their extremes and, and blow them up and then take them back to the factory and find out why they blew up. What was the weak point? You can't find that out if you're, you're just pussyfooting. You're going to stand on it and blow it up. And not on a dirt road in particular. A dirt road won't do it. Yeah. I mean, once once cars were capable of 30, 35, 40 miles an hour, they started to use the um, Indiana State Fairgrounds, which was a one-mile dirt track, but it wasn't long before that was outmoded as well. I said, we need a we need a large track. And so uh, there were several miscues, but it ended up they purchased the farmland where you and I are sitting right now, and uh, they laid out this track, two-and-a-half-mile rectangular-shaped oval, which is a contradiction in terms, but it is the shape that it is because that's what fit onto the property. It was flat, and it, it's a two-and-a-half-mile um, oval, rectangular oval-shaped track. And the idea was that uh, the automobile companies could come out and test privately, and then that occasionally automobile races would be held, but not for the sporting nature, uh, not to sell hats and T-shirts and cheer, the boo, cheer and boo the drivers, but rather to show the public how good automobiles were. They were supposed to be stripped down passenger cars. That's how it started out. I hope you enjoyed part one of our conversation with Donald Davidson, the track historian for the Indianapolis Speedway. In our next podcast, Donald will tell us what lies hidden beneath the surface of the raceway and many other fascinating details. Don't miss the conclusion of our conversation. If you enjoy these podcasts, then you'll love the digital edition of our magazine. Go to AmericanRoadMagazine.com and click on the Preview Our Magazine icon. You'll get a sample of the digital layout and the opportunity to sign up for electronic delivery of our next issues. While you're on the homepage, check out our blogs, trip suggestions, special deals, sweepstakes, and so much more. You can even friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Till we meet again on the American Road for another trip talk, this is your host, Foster Brown, reminding you that the joy is in the journey.